Let's open the Scriptures together to the book of Job. Job chapter 1, and then a portion from Matthew chapter 16. Reading in connection with what we confess in Article 13 of the Belgic Confession concerning God's providence, His ongoing care of the world. So we begin in Job 1, page 528 in the Pew Bible. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. We turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, page 1035 in the Pew Bible. We'll read the verses 16 through 33. The Lord Jesus is speaking here to His disciples. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 503, where we find the church's confession Belgic Confession, Article 13, on the subject of the providence of God. So that um, concept of providence was raised in Article 12, first paragraph, and then it gets explained here in Article 13. We believe that this good God, after He had created all things, did not abandon them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that according to His holy will, He so rules and governs them that in this world nothing happens without His direction. Yet God is not the author of the sins which are committed, nor can He be charged with them. For His power and goodness are so great and beyond understanding that He ordains and executes His work in the most excellent and just manner, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. And as to his actions surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire farther than our capacity allows, but with the greatest humility and reverence we adore the just judgments of God which are hidden from us. And we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, who have only to learn those things which He teaches us in His Word without transgressing these limits. This doctrine gives us inexpressible consolation, for we learn thereby that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the direction of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care keeping all creatures so under His power that not one hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor one sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this we trust, because we know that He holds in check the devil and all our enemies, so that they cannot hurt us without His permission and will. We therefore reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, who say that God does not concern Himself with anything but leaves all things to chance. So far, our confession.
In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 66, stanzas 3 and 4, where God, we sing of God bringing us through hardship, but yet uh, staying with us and rescuing us in His time. Saints of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, how are we to make sense of this world? What are we to think of all the mind-boggling, insane, and clearly wicked things that we read about so regularly on the news? It seems to only get worse with each passing month. A worker at Walmart takes out a gun and kills six of his fellow employees a few months back. A couple years ago, a man in a vehicle drives down a crowded street in Toronto, killing ten. Just last week, a bus driver in Montreal, for whatever reason, we don't even know, steered his bus into a, a daycare, killing a couple of children. There are school shootings on a regular basis. There are murder-suicides. There are so-called honor killings. And these are only a few of the individuals, the many individuals who go on killing sprees. What about whole governments and nations? Like in Sudan and China and North Korea. What about all the untold crimes against women and children all over the world? Sex trafficking is a huge industry worldwide, also in Canada. Enslavement to sex. It staggers the mind to think of it all, and it staggers the mind to think how easily certain people will take action against other people in order to profit off them or to injure them or violate them, even slaughter them without mercy. And all of that collectively is enough to make a person say, stop the world, I want to get off. Evil happens frequently in this world, and it happens certainly out there in society at large with great frequency, but do we not also experience hardship and adversity and also evil closer to home? Have you ever had a crime committed against you? Have you ever been the victim of slander or abuse? Has someone stolen something from you that you can never get back? Is there someone in your life sinning against you even right now, and you feel helpless to stop it? Christians, church members at time, face injustice and oppression. And when that happens, how do we handle that? And if it is not injustice, it may be suffering of a different kind a cancer diagnosis, wasting disease of the mind, crippling depression or anxiety. You don't have to look far to find injury, an ailment, relationship breakdown, addiction, loneliness. There is stress, there is heartache and tears from multiple sources. How do we make sense of it all? Where is God in all these things? How can we keep going in such a broken, broken world? Well, the answer lies in something called our confession. Our confession calls providence, the providence of God. And so I proclaim that gospel to you under this theme. Our good God directs all things as our caring Father. Our good God directs all things as our caring Father. We'll see that this broken world is sustained by Him. 
It's governed by Him, and it's ultimately redeemed by Him. Last time in Article 12, we saw how God created the world out of nothing, simply by speaking, simply by the power of His Word. And after that wonder of creation, a question naturally comes up, well, what did God do next? Like after day six or even after day seven, what did God do then? Did He go away and leave the universe to run itself? Did God maybe set up a number of internal structures or laws of nature and then fade into the background and let this whole thing work on its own like that, like a watchmaker might set up a watch and wind it up, and, then, and the watch just ticks away. Is that how God set up the world? A lot of people think so, if they think about God at all. For example, we're enjoying a fairly mild winter here in our area, but really right across the country, kind of unusual. And what does the weatherman or the weatherwoman say about this unusual winter? Well, you can hear them say such things as, Mother Nature has sent us an odd winter. Mother Nature. As if Mother Nature is an intelligent, independent being that makes decisions about the weather. And it's funny and ironic that the weather people dissect, who, who dissect weather patterns for a living, and they, they do so, so scientifically with all their advanced weather models, tracking ocean currents and wind speeds and wind directions, and yet when their predictions are off or something unexpected happens, then they turn around and they blame Mother Nature. So the world, the unbelieving world looks to science or in desperation will look to Mother Nature as the force in control of the weather, but they refuse to look to the living God who created all things, including the weather. So God is not in the picture for the weatherman or the weatherwoman. Have we developed that bad habit too, I wonder? Do we tend to just think like the world when we make negative or insulting comments about the weather or express frustration with how lousy the weather has been lately? When we make comments like that, are we forgetting who sends us the weather? It's easy to thank God for sunshine and warmth like on this beautiful day, but do we also acknowledge God's hand in the gray weather? The snow and the cold and the damp. I'm not saying those we need to be filled with the same kind of joy as on a sunny day when it's gray and damp, but should we be bitter about the weather when it's under those circumstances? When we understand the weather comes from God? And what about when there are more severe weather events like storms and tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes like the devastating one in Turkey last week? Do we join the world in casting blame on man-made climate change as if man is ultimately responsible for the weather events of this world, or do we revere our good Creator whose hand is in all these devastating things? I'd like you to notice how, the, how Article 13 begins, how we as God's people confess this. We believe that this good God, after He had created all things, did not abandon them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that according to His holy will, so rules and governs them that in this world nothing happens without His direction. It starts off, this good God. That connects back to Article 1, where we confess who God is. God is good, we said back in Article 1, based on Scripture. And we even said God is the overflowing fountain of all good. He's the source of good things. Article 13 will go on, as we read it, to talk about the sin and evil that exist all over this world, this upside-down world. But 
It starts off, it wants to be clear from the beginning that no matter the wretched condition of planet earth, no matter the sin in this present world, we know and believe that it is guided and governed by a good God. It is not, the world is not guided by fortune or chance, we confess. Chance, that's just another word for luck, isn't it? And again, isn't that the default thinking of so many people around us? Good luck, they say, when you start out on some venture, and if the venture turns out badly, they comment that, well, I guess you had bad luck. Sorry about your luck. People think of luck as some kind of impersonal power that somehow controls the random events of our life. This shows that people everywhere sense that there is some power outside of humanity that influences and guided, guides events, but again, instead of acknowledging the triune God of Holy Scripture, they would rather trust in, in something they cannot have access to, something they know nothing about, something that has no Bible to turn to, no revelation, something that offers no salvation, and something which in fact does not even exist, luck. They'd rather turn to that. Can't trust in God says the average unbeliever, because you can't prove God exists. But then they bow down before the God of luck, which is the invention of man's mind, and they, they eagerly line up at the slot machines and the blackjack tables and the lottery counters to cash in on their luck. It's not just gamblers. Isn't it for fear of bad luck that no apartment building has a 13th floor? I mean, just think about that. Check that out next time you're in an elevator. The numbers go from 12 to 14, not because the guy who installed the elevator can't count, but because people are scared of number 13. Knock on wood, some say, as if Knocking on wood will somehow prevent some bad thing from happening to you, some misfortune. Isn't it luck that NHL hockey players do not shave during the playoffs, that some of them will wear the same socks on game day that they always wear and go through the same rituals, tape their stick in just a certain way, put on their socks in a certain order, isn't it to avoid bad luck that the team which wins the President's Trophy, and watch that this spring, the team that wins the President's Trophy often will not even touch the cup. You know, when they get the Stanley Cup, they, they parade it around, they skate around the rink, they drink from it, but the President's Trophy, that's the one before the Stanley Cup, they don't even touch. Why? Because it brings bad luck. And they want the Stanley Cup, so they, for the sake of getting good luck, they leave the president's trophy on the table. All for the God, the stupid, blind, non-existent God called luck. Think about that. These are all people in our world, ordinary people. Well, in contrast to that nonsense, the Bible teaches that the good Creator who made all these things, he continues to be actively involved in all of his creation, and he's actively involved for the good of creation. Article 12 already stated, we believe that he also continues to sustain and govern them according to his eternal providence and by his infinite power. Mentions two activities that the Lord does continually. He sustains and he governs. That's what is meant by that word providence. God keeps or maintains the entire universe, and He also rules over and guides creatures and happenings in the entire universe. It is not luck or chance. It is not science or mother nature. It is not yin or yang. It is not the laws of nature. It is the good God who created this planet who also maintains this planet. 
It's our good God who has covenanted with us in the blood of His very own Son. It is He who upkeeps every atom, and it is He who guides every decision and every event in all His vast creation. This is providence. This is where consolation for God's people lies. We need to re-embrace this truth. I think many of us, if not all of us, will know it in our heads that God is in control and there's not really anything called luck. But do we functionally live it out in our lives? Do we act that way? Listen to Psalm 104, a psalm which celebrates God's work of creation and then goes on to talk about God's work of providence, His care over creation. Verse 27, the poet says, these all, and he's referring to creatures and animals, these all, they look to you to give them their food in due season. When you, the Lord, give it to them, the animals, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. The poet is describing the, the caring, the sustaining work of God's providence, and it extends to all creatures of the earth, from the tiniest insects down there in the dirt to the lions in the jungle to the great blue whales of the ocean. God provides for the animals. He causes plants to grow. He, he waters the earth with rain and snow, causing even grass to grow for the cattle, says verse 14, causing uh, plants to grow for man to cultivate. It is even so that the Holy Spirit is involved here. The Holy Spirit keeps creatures, animals, alive. And the Holy Spirit, He renews the face of the ground every spring. Did you know that, brothers and sisters, that, that when you look out your window and you could, you could hear some birds chirping this morning, beautiful, when you see the birds coming back to nest in the spring and the grass turning green and, and the rosebuds popping out and the, the trees starting to blossom a little bit, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who lives in you, the same Spirit who is in the Lord Jesus Christ is sent forth to go throughout creation and renew it. It is not Mother Nature. It's our Heavenly Father's power at work, His comprehensive and detailed sustaining might that is at work in blessing us with the turning of the seasons and the maintenance of all of life. These things, they, they happen every day, animal life and plant life and the turning of the seasons. And because they are so common, it's easy for us to kind of take them for granted. We don't give them much thought. As if it's all just natural and automatic and without anyone causing it, of course these things happen. It's hardly something to get excited about. But brothers and sisters, the Bible says it's something to get excited about. This is the hand of God at work every moment of every day in all these little millions of things. So let, let us stop and take note of what God is doing all around us. And when the roses bloom this spring, let's stop and smell the roses. Our God is actively causing your garden to come back to life. Plants and animals live and thrive as a work of God's love for this broken world, a world that He sent His Son to die for, a world He also guides and governs with a plan and a purpose that brings blessing to His people. For we might ask ourselves, why? Why does God care for these insects and the lions and the whales and the grass and the plants and all the creatures and living things. Why? Why does God choose to involve Himself in the weather? It could have been done differently. If the Lord had desired to, He, he could have set up the earth in such a way that, 
It did operate according to a series of laws. He, he could have done it like a watchmaker, makes a watch, wind it up, and just walk away and let it tick. But Scripture is very clear that there is not a molecule in all of creation that does not daily depend on the will of the Creator for its existence. And why is it that God is so actively involved? Because God made this world to serve a purpose. He made this world to fulfill a plan, and God is actively guiding every tiny detail of the world in order to make that plan unfold. Everything works together according to His plan. That plan is mentioned a few places in Scripture. I want to quote one from Ephesians chapter 1, which is mentioned in a footnote here in Article 13. Paul says in Ephesians 1, in Him, that's in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, here it comes, according to the purpose of Him, there's a purpose there, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we might be to the praise of His glory. He works all things according to the counsel of His will, according to His plan, you might want to translate, so that we might exist to the praise of His glory. So God is interested in the molecules, and He's interested in the sea creatures and the sky creatures and the land animals, and especially all human beings, because all these have a role to play in that master plan of His. And the goal of that plan is to bring the Creator the glory He deserves. All God's created works serve a purpose in shining forth the glory of God, even in their fallen condition, in a world corrupted by sin. All God's creatures got a place in the choir. Some sing low and some sing higher, says the song, but they all sing God's praises. That's the point. We need to take this into that other aspect of God's providence. We've talked about sustaining, how God sustains the world. The other aspect is how God governs this broken world. He oh, superintends it. Another way to say that is God rules the world. He regulates how things are done because He's got that plan. The events of the world and also the events of your personal lives and mine, these events do not happen by chance or luck. There is no such thing as luck. But they happen by the guiding hand of our God. It's one thing to know and believe that God upkeeps every creature and all things, but it gets more complicated to think about God governing and guiding the decisions of people and events in this world, events which we know include evil things, terrible things, sad, deeply sad things. Yet the Bible does not shy away from this truth, the truth that God is in control even of evil things, even of evil spirits, which is why we read Job 1. We read there in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Sons of God, that's just another expression for the angels. So the angels came to give an account of their service, their work on the earth to God, and Satan, who's a fallen angel, he also comes. He has to come. Right away we understand something we saw last week. The evil spirits are not on God's level, nor are they some kind of independent beings. They have to answer to God. They, they're, they're just creatures under God's authority and control. Satan has to line up with the other angels, even though he's a rebel. In fact, 
Satan and his demons, they cannot act on their evil instincts unless God gives them permission. That's really clear from that interview the Lord has with Satan in Job 1. The Lord mentions Job to Satan as a shining example of faithfulness, and when Satan answers back with a challenge, daring God to remove that hedge of protection from around Job and let him fall into the devil's hands, because if you did that, God, Job will surely curse you to your face, God grants him that request. But then he provides a limit, verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, that's to Satan, only against him do not stretch out your hand. It's the same in chapter 2 when Satan comes back. Then Job is given permission to even touch Job's health, but not take away his life. Again, brothers and sisters, understand just how totally in control the Lord is even over the fallen angels. Satan, you can go so far, says the Lord, but not a step further, not even a toe over the line. Satan has no choice but to obey. Our God is in control. And still, we have our questions. We wonder, how does this all make sense? I mean, Satan goes on to destroy Job's workforce, Job's animals, Job's wealth, and he even kills Job's children. That's evil, right? That, that's just these are wicked things that Satan does. That's the kind of loss that if it would happen to us, it happened to Job in a single day, it would stagger us with mourning and depression and despair. Is, God, is God's hand in this? How does Job not think that God has done him wrong? Yet it clearly says Job did not blame the Lord. Well, we have to keep in mind some of the basic facts, as Job evidently did, starting with this one. God is good. He's not evil. He's truly good. Angels, fallen angels like Satan and the others with him are not good, but remember that they fell into sin by their own free decision, as did mankind. This good God, He created good angels and He created good human beings. But some angels and the entire human race rebelled, plunging themselves into sin, and they became corrupt, those angels and us as a human race. We became corrupt from head to toe. We became evil. So did Satan and his followers. But it was not God who did that. It was not God who brought sin and misery into this world. It was us. God was at that time and remains so today in control, but that control never cancels out the responsibility of His creatures. Angels and humans once made this free choice and we blew it. God allowed that to happen for reasons the Bible never explains, but God did not cause it to happen. He is good. This good God does not initiate evil, but He is so in control that He makes use of evil for His good purposes. Well, when we start with that, then it gets a little easier to understand that just as God gave His creatures opportunity to make decisions at creation, He continues to give them opportunity to make decisions now. And He holds us responsible for those decisions. Now, on the one hand, when it comes to faith and salvation, God works powerfully in the hearts of His elect to convert those hearts and to, to bring us to faith, to cause us to love Him. 
So that's what He does for us against our natural instinct. But on the other hand, when it comes to us falling into sin at certain moments, God never pushes us to do something that we wouldn't already want to do. God never directs us to say or do something against what we already want to do. And that explains what the Lord was doing with Satan here in Job. Satan's one continuous desire since his fall is to break down the kingdom of God. That's his full-time job. I want to destroy the kingdom of God. That's his mantra. I want to somehow dethrone the Almighty. It's not possible, but that's still what he's trying to do. And so the Lord in, in Job 1 is giving to Satan exactly what he wants. And the Lord has a higher purpose in it than Satan. Satan's purpose is to destroy, but the Lord is using Satan in order to expose the very lie of Satan's claim, the claim that people like Job only worship God because God pampers them. That's what Satan said to the Lord. Lord, if you didn't pamper Job so much, he wouldn't, he wouldn't believe you. And the Lord's answer is no, Satan. That's the answer of the whole book of Job. No, Satan. My people worship me. My people love me because I first loved them. That's the perspective then we need to have when we face trouble or hardship, even outright acts of evil, persecution, or other forms of suffering as believers, understand that the Lord, the Lord stands above it all. Our Savior even teaches us to expect these things as part of taking up our cross. Remember what He said there, take up our cross and follow after me. It's also part of God's plan to further His kingdom and gather in His church. The Lord Jesus says, you should expect suffering just like I suffered. You will be walking in my footsteps if you suffer. And again, recall that all things are at work for that highest goal, Ephesians 1. The highest goal is the glory of the Lord. Job Job suffered, right? He suffered unimaginably. I mean, it's really hard for us to fathom what Job suffered. And yet, you know, he was never given an explanation. Nowhere in the book is Job told why. And most often in our troubles, we don't know why either. We often look for a reason. We'd love to find a reason, rationalize it. What lesson do I need to learn? What purpose does this hardship serve in my life? And yet often it's not clear. No answer is forthcoming. We should understand that God may have other reasons that we are not privy to, like Job was not privy to those reasons. Other reasons altogether for doing what He's doing in our life. And a sure one is that in our hardships, somehow God's name is going to be honored. That's a sure one. Ultimately, it's not about us. Yes, certainly God works for our good, Romans 8. But then our good shows forth His glory again, right? It all comes back to His glory. Job was brought into a time of suffering to show angels and humans alike God's power and saving grace that what Satan said was not true, no doubt Job learned lessons and for himself and, and he matured in his faith and he was refined in his sanctification. All good things. And in the end, the glory of God shone brighter for it all. Like when you get to the end of the book of Job, the glory of God is just amazing, isn't it? Jesus teaches us this too in Matthew 10, which we read. 
He first warns the disciples and the church that they can expect persecution, floggings, arrests, imprisonments. Christians will be brought before rulers and judges. They will be betrayed even by family members, he says. We will be hated by all, Christ teaches. We can expect to flee and be called demons because even our Lord Jesus was called Beelzebub. He's saying evil things will happen to God's people. But right in that context, Jesus then says, verse 26, so have no fear of them. He lists quite a few evil things that they could expect to happen, we can expect to happen. And then he says, so have no fear. That's quite something. Because that list of things evokes naturally quite a fearful feeling in the pit of your stomach. And it builds in us the hope that, I hope it never happens to me. I hope I never have to be brought before judges and governors and spend time in prison. But Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not fear man, says our Savior, because man's ability to hurt us is very limited. All that he can do, the worst he can do is end your earthly life. But he cannot touch your eternal life. And that's the thing that's going to last forever. Let us, says Jesus, fear God, who alone has the power to send people into eternal damnation and to preserve and save a people to eternal life. That's the other side of the coin. And that comes out in the Lord's next statement, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus is saying all this persecution, this potential suffering which could very well happen to you, you should expect it, all of it will come to you only by the will of my Father. I mean, a hair of yours doesn't fall to the ground unless the Father wills it. So no tribunal is going to call you forward unless the Father has willed it. No whip is going to strike your back. No prison jail cell is going to close over you unless your Father has willed it. That's what he's saying. And the Father he's talking about is the Father who loves you and me. The Father who cares for you. The Father who sent His Son for you. Our good God directs all things, also the hurtful and hard things, as our loving Father. So we must not be anxious. We must not be afraid. We must rest in our Father's hands in His guidance. You know, the Lord Jesus says it twice. Do not fear and whenever the Lord says something twice, that's a signal to us that we have to pay extra attention. As it were, we have to listen twice with both our ears. Cancer might be here, but do not be afraid of it. Your flesh might be giving out on you and your health might be failing for this reason or that reason, but do not be anxious about it. For your Father is above, governing all these things for your good and His glory. Do not be afraid. People may have abused you in the past. You may well have suffered a true injustice in this life. Do not let that consume you or embitter you. That too was under the Father's eye. That too was allowed to take place for a grander purpose than we can fathom right now. And that too will be judged and avenged by our Lord when He returns as judge of all the earth. Do not be afraid. People may break us. They may break down our bodies. They may affect our souls and 
They may hurt us in many ways, all with God's permission. But that eternal life we've got, that is untouchable. It will be preserved, ready to rise again in the new and everlasting life, in the resurrection, in Christ's glorious kingdom, because that's what the plan is working toward. That's part of the goal of the master plan of God. That's how He's going to bring the fullest praise to Himself, the fullest glory, by redeeming the broken world that we live in, by saving a people for Himself. Christ encourages us with these words in verse 32 of Matthew 10. So everyone, everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I also will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. What is He saying? If you confess Me now in this life, if you know Me as your Lord and Savior, I will own you on the day when I come back, when I and my Father return to this earth with all the angels to judge the living and the dead, I will own you. I will acknowledge you. I will say to my Father, yes, I know that one, and I know that one, and He'll put your name in there. I will acknowledge you before my Father for your salvation. The providence of God is at work maintaining all things and guiding all things until that day. Things evil and things good. Things which cause pain and things which bring joy. All things are being used by the Lord. So, do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. Quiet your troubled hearts. That's the gospel of God's providence. Evil things do happen. And yes, there is a great deal of misery in this world that's been broken by our sin. But trust this, trust this, that God uses every broken bit and every broken spirit and every crooked stick and cracked piece of glass, He uses them all to bring His people to their complete redemption, to their full restoration and healing, and to total joy. He's using it all. Amen.